And now, a few of my favorite things about watching the Olympics. Definitely right up there would have to be the play-by-play announcing for snowboard cross. Okay, it's a great day for a race, Tim. The snow is white, uh-huh. the curves are curvy. Yep. Uh, as you can see, the yellow guy mm. is slightly ahead of the red guy at this point in the race. Green mm. guy is in third. Sure. Okay, look closely, and you can see the reason yellow guy is winning here is mm. because he's moving slightly faster. Uh, of course. The yeah. object, again, Tim, uh-huh. is to get to the bottom first. Right. Okay, here comes the big ch- Red guy crashed. Right. That's not good. No, it isn't. Best sport to watch, worst sport to listen to. All right, let's see what else. Uh, how about watching NBC totally sell out by pretending ads for a movie are actually part of the content? <clears throat> good evening, everybody. I'm Bob Costas. Uh, we're going to take a pause from bringing you actual sports to... Uh, Imagine what it might be like if Vikings with Dragons invented speed skating. Go. Viking speed skating was designed for the Nordic nature lover. All right, I do not have a Bob Costas impression, but I could not find a clip of Bob Costas doing this anywhere. Probably because if you have seen one of these, and how can you miss them, you can read the emasculated pain deep behind his eyeballs as he sells out completely. Uh, Why they've got a Scottish guy, Gerard Butler, doing voiceovers for a movie about ancient Norwegians, I have no idea. Sounds like Craig Ferguson, I know, but it's not. It's Gerard Butler. And while we're talking about uh, frequently running Olympics ads, who wouldn't love NBC's sad attempt to tap our classic music nerve and put a positive spin on the fact that Jay Leno's coming back? Get back! Get back to your garage, tinker with your cars, and count your money, I say. But uh, whatever. Really going for the ratings jugular, too, that first week. Sarah Palin is booked on Tuesday. Uh, But that's not about the Olympics. Back to the Olympics. There is, seriously, plenty to love. I love the fact that the best ski jumper in the world. Remember this goofball from 2002? Okay, he's from Switzerland. And this guy is back. He's not winning by inches. He's winning by the length of a school bus. Nobody can touch him. He's practically landing outside the course. That's awesome. I love uh, that the Russian figure skater couldn't blow enough kisses to the judges to brown nose his way out of a silver medal. Go USA. I love that one of the ice dancing pairs last night, and I'm typically not into ice dancing, but this time, I don't know, I'm flexible. Um, This pair from Great Britain actually had the woman lift the guy. That was cool. I love that the Olympic mascot this time is not some cuddly uh, Pokemon thing. It's a bunch of stones piled on top of each other. It's an Inuit reference. Very classy. And actually kind of like recedes in a very cool way into kind of ubiquitous logo-ness. You hardly even know that it's there. It's It's a great mascot. I love the fact these Olympics aren't perfect. They're really far from perfect. Not like the stupid perfect Chinese. At least it's clear Canada's not trying to take over the world. And most of all, I love that there's actually something on TV that my wife wants to watch with me. For a few days yet. Okay, we got a crazy lot of stuff on the show today. It's definitely not all about the Olympics, but we're going to start there. We were tossing some ideas around the other day in the Cuberhood, and uh, Sand had mentioned that he had a friend who had just told him that she was headed to Vancouver to compete in the Olympic skeleton. And that seemed like a great lead, until it turned out to be a complete and utter fabrication. Uh, But in the cube next to me, our friend Jackie, who works in membership, piped up that there was someone from her hometown who she thought was in the Olympics. They both grew up in uh, Aliknagik, Alaska. 
And uh, she said this girl was an Olympic athlete in snowboard cross. Well, that lead panned out, and we've got her on the phone here. She's still in Vancouver, and here comes the name. Wish me luck with this. Uh, Callan Chithluk Sisoth. I got that right? Yep, you got it. That's a crazy name. <laughs> yeah, one part of it's Eskimo, and the other part's Russian. So we'll just get this out of the way. You, you didn't win, unfortunately. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. Did you did you have a particularly uh, tough race? How did it pan out? Um, for you? I felt like I raced pretty well, and I, I'm pretty happy with how it went. I had two falls in two of the qualification runs. You get two runs to qualify, kind of, and and yeah, uh, so you have two runs to qualify. And so on both qualification runs, I I fell, but I mean, I, it's something that happens in border cross. I feel like, and people fall all the time. So that's what I would think. Watching that sport, which I think is like the most fun sport to watch. I'm really glad they, they added that to the Olympics. But it's like, on any given day, like anybody, in a way, could win. You have to have a certain amount of talent, but it's just so, like, rough and tumble. Yeah, it's so, it's kind of a little unpredictable, I feel like. You, I guess you, as good as you might be, you just kind of have to live with that every time you go out to the course, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, like, that's another part of it is if you're good enough to stay on your feet. Um, but other than that, like, I had a great time, and I enjoyed every part of it, so... Well, just being there must be really cool. And yeah. uh, we talked quickly about your name. And so you have another really interesting distinction. And I, I hope I've got this right. You are the first Eskimo, well, at least the first Alaska Eskimo, and maybe the first period to compete in an Olympics, right? Yeah. I'm so honored to be representing my culture. It's just because where I come from is so different from a lot of other places in the U.S. And mm-hmm. it almost feels like I'm here representing Eskimos and it does. United States. Is there a reason you think that uh, it took this long for an Inuit person to compete in the Olympics? I mean, I think it just comes down to the fact that, you know, where I grew up and everywhere in Alaska outside of the urban areas is so far remote. I mean, to get to like 90% of the cities in Alaska, you have to fly or take a boat. Kids in Los Angeles can start doing track and field and Mm -hmm. Just opportunities that come after taking an interest in something are a lot more than in Bush, Alaska, where I come from. You know, I think for me, it took a lot of effort for my mom to, she supported me in what I what I liked, and she did everything possible to, to make it happen. That was a huge part in, in how I got here. So the vast majority of people at the Olympics who compete, of course, don't don't medal. And we forget about them very quickly because the cameras just go to the people who do. Uh, and so I'm just wondering, like, w- when you're in that situation, how quickly for you did you did you kind of move on or, and sort of get your head just in a, in a space that's not focused on, you know, the sad part of what happened? Um, I think for me, it's, it's, you know, my first Olympics, and I hope to be at the next one in Russia, too. And so you're 21, um, right? Yeah. OK, so you got time. <laughs> But uh, for sure it was disappointing initially after the race. But I think there's just so much going on here. I'm just, uh, I'm really excited to be here. And so I think that overshadows anything. Well, snowboard cross happens pretty early in the Olympics. What do you, what do you do after you're done? It's kind of been like kind of busy. I I think there's been a few interviews and stuff, but there's all kinds of, I went to a hockey game yesterday. So are there lots of uh, crazy parties for the American Olympians? We remember hearing something Santa and I about during the Summer Olympics, like the Americans just had like crazy parties. Really? I've never been a part of that, so uh, <laughs> not that I know. But yeah. <laughs> Do people not really want to have much fun if they haven't actually competed yet? I think that definitely depends on the sport, for sure. I think some sports may be a little bit more 
like intense and some people some sports may be a little bit more relaxed but everybody has something different going on and you could I mean people are still competing some people are done competing some people are going home some people are staying so I think it's kind of hard to tell what everybody else is doing just because it's so big here I would think of the uh, snowboarders uh, and the snowcross racers and the you know half pipers Sean White and all that I would think that you guys are like the cool kids at the Olympics <laughs> Uh, just I don't know. There's you know. so many celebrities here. Like, I mean, I think we're definitely. I mean, we might be the cool kids, but I think there's there's so many people here like that are big names in every sport, like Apollo Ono and Johnny right. Weir. And so I think, I mean, the snowboarders are pretty starstruck. I feel like like in opening ceremonies, everybody's trying to get pictures with with the athletes and stuff. So if you're here, you're pretty cool. <laughs> Well, this has been really cool to talk with you. Thanks for taking a little bit of time, and uh, I'll let you go and have as much fun as you can for you. All right, sweet. head back Thank home. Thank you very much. You bet. That's Callan Chiflick Sisoth, and she's talking with me from Vancouver. She competed in snowboard cross. Now we asked our Public Insight Network, which you can be a part of. Many of you probably are about your Olympic loves or pet peeves, and we mostly heard back the pet peeve variety, like Philip in Walla Walla, Washington, who is in the same time zone as Vancouver for crying out loud, and yet is forced to wait till late in the evening to watch the good stuff because it's delayed and packaged up and everything, so it can run on prime time on the East Coast. That's annoying. I am with you. And John of St. Paul, who'd rather watch without the commentators. I think John actually most of the stuff on NBC's website, if you want to check it out, is commentatorless, which is kind of spooky um, to me, but it's there if you want it. One person who wrote in was not quibbling so much with the coverage, but with the athletes, just a little bit. Brian Riley has uh, four kids. They're all watching. They all play sports. And so he's very sensitive to sportsmanship. To paraphrase his longer argument, he's worried that the medal ceremony especially is becoming a little too much of a me, me, me moment. And it is, of course, the ultimate me, me, me moment. Very hard earned which is why even a little magnanimity goes a long way. Uh, Brian, for example, is surprised at how many American winners don't even make a token stab at the national anthem. You know, even if they're just mouthing it or whatever, that would be one little thing. You're on national television or international television in front of millions of people. It seems like people from other countries maybe sing their national anthem a little more wholeheartedly. Um, it was Lindsey Vaughn that I was watching in particular that I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she did anything wrong. I felt so happy for her. Um, and she worked really hard to get where she was. But I wished maybe she had done that. Well, I watched that too. And I had the same thought. Right. I, right. Would, I feel better about it when I see them singing. Right. And, and it's a little more heartwarming. But, you know, I got all teary eyed watching her and just felt fantastic for her. And then I thought, man, if you leaned over and hugged that girl from that other country that you probably don't even know who got the bronze, how classy would that be? Mm -hmm. You know, I think in this day and age with all the hotshot athletes, particularly in professional sports, it's just embarrassing. What do you want your kids to see is that, you know, you're not going to be a hotshot athlete forever, and you're probably not going to be a professional athlete, but even in the sports that you do play, you're a class act if you're nice to other people. Brian lives in Hastings, Minnesota, and you can tell he himself is such a nice person that it truly pains him to criticize anybody, much less Lindsey Vaughn. I kind of made him name names there. Uh, but I do think as a general trend, he might be onto something. I've kind of found myself wondering since talking to him about various aspects of the Olympics and what they do actually say to kids. Then again, any quibbles he and I might have in that respect pale in comparison to the other big, vaguely sports-related event of the week, Tiger telling us all he's sorry for being so famous he couldn't keep it in his pants. I was 
taken in, I'll admit, by the whole 15-minute thing. It was really a compelling, painful, drawn-out delivery that he gave. A real old-fashioned public shaming that basically shut down the news business for an hour on Friday. And uh, I was musically flailing a little bit this week until Tiger came along and basically laid down the lyrics for me. So on a whim, I just picked up a guitar and I knocked out this abridged uh, but verbatim version of the Tiger Woods Apology. Good morning and thank you for joining me today. Many of you in this room are my friends. I want to say to each of you simply and directly, I am deeply sorry for my selfish and irresponsible behavior. People want to know how I could have been so stupid and so selfish. Well, the issue here is that I cheated. I'm the only one to blame. I stopped living according to my core values. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but thought only about myself and thought I could get away with whatever, whatever I wanted to. I felt I was entitled. I had worked hard. Money and fame made me believe I was entitled. I was wrong. I was foolish. Don't get to live by different rules On the same boundaries that apply to everyone Apply to me I hurt my mother, my wife, my kids The friends of my foundation This has made me look at myself in a way I never wanted to again It's time to make amends And that starts by not repeating this behavior It's not what you achieve in life that matters it's what you overcome achievements on the golf course are not what matters decency and honesty well that's what matters families used to look up to me as a role model to their kids and I'm sorry to those families I have been in inpatient therapy receiving lots of guidance To the many people in this room and at home who believed in me, I ask for your help. I ask you to find room in your heart one day to believe in me again. Thank you. I know, that was weird. I don't know exactly what my point was, but uh, since the video went up on Friday, I got a number of comments from people that they found it moving, uh, helps them see the words in a new light, so if I can help, bully. All right, we've done sports and sex. Now let's talk about some real news, maybe. Sometimes when the occasion calls for it, you know, we go out hunting for professors, and in rare, mysterious instances, they actually come to us. And this is one of those times. Scott Adler wrote us a few months back and said, hey, I listen to the show, and if you ever need an expert in congressional power structures, give me a call. I think he was also after one of Sandin's Google Wave invites, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, We sort of put that in our back pocket, and this week, as much, maybe more than any other week, seems like a great week to talk about congressional power structures, so let's do it. Scott teaches political science at the University of Colorado, 
And Scott, we're glad to finally have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, just talk broad brush here and, and historical, because I think you have a bit of a historical bent to the, the research that you do. Uh, the situation that we're in right now, it seems to me and to many people like we're just settling in for many months, if not longer, of, of just nothing but frustration. Have we been here before and has it been equally frustrating? Well, in some ways, yes. If you go back to the 1960s, for example, uh, the, the Johnson and Kennedy administrations, Democrats did have a very sizable majority in both chambers. But what was different at the time was what was called the conservative coalition, which was Southern Democrats who were extremely conservative, working together with Republicans to hinder again, a relatively liberal agenda of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Hmm. In particular, it was civil rights legislation. Sadly, uh, um, the event that really moved the legislation forward was, of course, Kennedy's assassination. And right after that, Johnson was able to get past the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. So I think what might be slightly different nowadays is, of course, the tactics like the hold in the Senate, which is relatively new in, in speaking in historical terms. So speaking of tactics, uh, and the Republicans have used them effectively in many cases, let's talk about a very up-to-the-moment situation here. The new health care proposal that Obama has come forward with doesn't seem to offer a lot of concessions to Republicans. In fact, they're rejecting it just as they rejected the, the previous ideas. But we're not talking about the Democrats themselves maybe moving forward with something called reconciliation, which would be, I don't know, is that, is that their version of a, of a dirty, underhanded way to get something done in Congress? It's been used before. It's a means of getting around the requirement of the supermajority. It dates back to the Budget Act in 1974, which was a means by which Congress was reasserting its budgetary authority against a president at the time, Nixon, who was using the budget to move forward his agenda. Basically, Congress was passing legislation that required the government to spend money, and he was refusing to spend the money. So they put together this Budget Act, which basically said to the executive branch, you have to spend this money if, if we authorize the money and appropriate the money. But as part of that act, it also structured a budgetary process for Congress. So that meant that it had to meet certain dates throughout the year in which it was in the process of writing its budget. So it, it sort of outlines what the budget is going to look like and how much it's going to spend in different areas of government, and then okay. goes and writes the specific appropriations bills to spend that money. So what would be the exact mechanics? Uh, because I remember watching online Chris Matthews vehemently denying in an interview with a particular congressman that reconciliation could ever be used in this situation, and now here we are, the president's, well, in a very quiet way, talking about it. How would it work? Well, they would write a new piece of legislation that effectively incorporated portions of the health care reforms that meet these criteria of either raising revenue or spending money. And then they would pass it. But under the rules of reconciliation, they only require 50 percent plus one. So you embed health care reform in some sort of budget revision kind of a thing. That's right. Let's talk about another factor uh, sort of pending on the dynamics of Congress. In Florida, there's this guy, Marco Rubio. Uh, he's a former state assemblyman, I guess, and he's he's running for Senate, and he's doing very well uh, in the Republican primary race, and he might win it. And people are talking about him maybe being essentially the first Tea Party senator. And I wonder what you think about the implications of that, of this Tea Party movement 
sending a senator to D.C.? Well, you certainly could see a Tea Party influence within the Republican ranks. There have been instances in which a insurgent movement like this has helped to propel one of the major parties toward uh, larger majorities. Uh, in the 1990s, the reform movement, uh, Ross Perot's reform movement, that really got its start in the 92 election, continued after the 92 election, and the Republican Party, mostly through the work of Newt Gingrich and the people working with Newt Gingrich, uh, were able to capitalize on the activation of these Reform Party voters hmm. in order to bring the Republican Party into the majority in both chambers in the 1994 election. So they co-opted that agenda and they rode that for a long time. Absolutely. The Republicans ex very explicitly in the contract with America, which was Newt Gingrich's manifesto as to what the Republicans would do if they were to take the majority, wrote big portions of that specifically to appeal to reform party voters and was very successful in doing that. So this sounds like potentially a complete revision and very soon of uh, the, the realignment everybody speculated about after after Obama was elected in terms of the country, you know, actually, well, we're discovering that it's very, very blue. And now, in fact, not really. There might be all these red voters just waiting to turn out uh, once they've got a, some Tea Party energy on the ticket. Well, it can go in both directions, though. Uh, the other direction is if they aren't satisfied with the, a conservative movement within the Republican Party, they can simply choose to either not show up or they may choose to field their own candidates and split the conservative vote. So it could go either way. Well, a little historical perspective uh, makes me feel somewhat better. Scott, thanks very much for talking with me for a few minutes. It's my pleasure. Scott Adler is the author of books including Why Congressional Reforms Fail. He is an associate professor of political science in the University of Colorado, talking with me from Boulder. He is also equally important, to me anyway, a listener of the show, a member of our Public Inside Network, and one of our news nichers. If you uh, want to tell us about an area of the news that you follow really closely, whether it is congressional power structures or something else, get in touch with us at intheloopshow.net. Switching gears now, let's uh, do some techie nerd news with an every now and then segment put together by our friend and producer Sandon Totten. It's called The Week in Geek, and it has a stupid new little theme song. It goes like this. The Week in Geek. So, Sandon, it's been a long time since we've done A Week in Geek uh, formally, but you've been a geek all along, yeah, right? Let's just clarify. Yeah, every week. Uh, we've just been distracted by all kinds of other interesting scribbit questions and things like that. But uh, today we've got some nerdy, geeky stories that you all on your own got intrigued by <laughs> yep. and are going to bring to our attention. So, You all ready uh, for this? What's your first story? The first story, this big thing had been blown up all over the Twittersphere. And as a geek, I'm- Twittersphere! I'm allowed to use like that I dropped phrase. that R in the middle. <laughs> all upset about a new website called pleaserobme.com. Sounds harmless. Harmless, except the <laughs> intent is basically to give burglars information on people who are leaving their house. There's um, another application out there called Foursquare. Of course, I'm sure you've heard wait, of wait, it. Wait, wait, wait. So this site is run uh, by burglars for burglars? No, it's run by nerds for burglars, sort of, to make a point. So okay. people use this program called Foursquare. They go out there and they share their information about, you know, I'm at this bar. Boy, do they. I'm going to this toy store. I'm now at uh, this party. And the point of it I'm is- I'm the if, mayor of Yeah, if you go to a place, place enough whatever. times, yeah. you become the mayor of that place. Yeah. And you get some sort of nerd point badge and everyone thinks you're cool. <laughs> 
So people have been doing this for a while. It's fairly popular. But these uh, these designers thought, you know, this is a great tool for burglars. You all should be more careful. And so to make a point, they created this website called pleaserobme.com where it basically just posts so-and-so has left their house and they are at blah, blah, blah. So if you're thinking of robbing somebody, you could just log on there ostensibly mm. and see, you know, Jeff Horich has left his house and he is now at his favorite bagel place where he is wow. the mayor with the most nerd points. Or do we know, are people using it for that? We don't know yet. And, and here's the thing. Everybody started flipping out being nice. like, these guys are doing a great job of showing us that we're oversharing. And, and there's been a lot of like oversharing buzz lately, like Google Buzz, for instance, is one thing a lot of people thought was invading their privacy. But there's also this new program, a social network site called Blippy that basically just lets people see what their friends have been buying with a credit card. And there's even like, you know, sites like I just made love.com where you can post, you know, the obvious. So people pictures. No, no, just the location on the map. Thankfully. Well, and these are but these are all things that people are signing up for. But the thing is, we're pulling ourselves out there in all of these ways. And someone would like to hold a mirror up. Right. So everyone's freaking out being like, you know, this is it. This is it. This is the site that's basically calling attention to how stupid we're being. All these burglars are not going to rob us. We're going to pay for a glut of tweets. But um in the midst of all this scary brouhaha, uh, one tech writer, Mike McConnell, he writes for The Examiner and Digital Entertainment News, he said, um, don't believe the hype. In general, I mean, Twitter doesn't encourage you to, you know, put a pin in Google Maps that says, hey, this is my house, you know, and, and neither does Foursquare. I mean, Foursquare in general, unless you actually create your, your apartment as a place on the map, just works off of businesses. So it's not like someone's just going to be able to go through there and find out, you know, hey, this person lives at, you know, such and such X. Burglary is a random crime, and it's not uh, something they tend to be staking out on Twitter to find out if they're going to break into your house. So basically, Mike is saying, you know, this is not a big threat. You've got so much other information an aspiring burglar would need. Like, say you left your house. Maybe you don't live alone. Maybe you have a big dog. Maybe there is a gremlin in your closet with a shotgun waiting for burglars. Who knows? But (laughs) any... Any savvy burglar would know you'd need more info than this, and so they'd probably just be best staking a house out anyway. Yeah, and... but I don't know. I mean, if if they're already watching you, I mean, I don't know if this goes for burglary, but they say, you know, most crimes are committed by someone we know, right? If they're already sure. thinking of robbing you and they just need, like, to be able to get a text message update when the perfect time is, they could just sign up and follow your Foursquare account, you know, and there you go. Ah, that was when I rob them. I guess if that's the case, uh, then that's a problem. But, you know, if someone's out to get you that bad that they've been setting up a SMS feed of when you're leaving your house, <laughs> chances Subscribing are... Subscribing to me so they know when to rob me. <laughs> they were going to yeah. rob you anyway. So at that point, uh, you'd best just be getting a really big Rottweiler. Yeah, and I just want to say to everybody listening right now, I am at home right now. So don't try anything. All right, Sandin has uh, some more for us. What's up? Yeah, so... All around the world, people know Bill Nye, the science guy, as, you know, a stand-up uh, science host. And he just, an you know... An icon. An icon of, of science nerdery. nerdery. Yes. Yeah. So, um, anyway, he shows up on the scene uh, a couple weeks ago promoting a new product called the Ionator. He basically does a little informational video talking about how this thing, which uh, is, like, basically a spray bottle with a little electric nozzle, he talks about how it's going to change cleaning as we know it. Well, at Active Iron, we found a way to clean surfaces as well or better than conventional cleaning products using ordinary tap water and a carefully controlled very small amount of electricity to create a blend of microscopic bubbles and charged up water molecules. We call this activated water. With this, 
With this, I could... Dare I say it? Clean the world! <laughs> well, Sandin, you know, Bill Nye's gotta eat. And, you know, I gotta say, having grown up watching Bill Nye, I wouldn't imagine he would risk his credibility on something, right? He must believe in it. Well, that's the thing people are arguing, because he is being paid to do this. But everyone would assume that a guy like Bill Nye would only do something he believes in because he believes in science, which is all about objective truths. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I found this blog post on Metafilter, where you know, I get a lot of my news, and the people there were just livid that Bill Nye would, it would endorse something that seems so bogus. I mean, basically, you're talking about a spray bottle that charges up water and somehow will clean better than ammonia and bleach and all these other things, but it's still just tap water. And it's hard for a lot of people to swallow that that really is as good as it sounds and that Bill Nye would really be behind it, you know, when it sounds like it's just some sort of new shamwow. So has anybody actually studied, is anybody actually studying this thing, this technique, to see if it works? Well, not the actual thing that Bill's promoting, not the ionator, but electrolyzed water, which is the same stuff, which is basically just water that's been charged negatively and positively, so it has a little electricity thrown through it, and then it, you know, turns into little magnets for dirt, basically. It's got ions that suck up the dirt. Okay. Um, That stuff's been studied, and uh, it was actually a food scientist, Joellen Firetag, here at the University of Minnesota, and uh, she found it killed E. coli, salmonella, listeria, and other nasty pathogens. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's good. It seems to do what it says. There's lots of studies backing it up, but I guess people are just um, having trouble believing that it could stand up to all that crazy Bill Nye hype. Okay, so at this point, I need to... uh... Come clean. Haha. Uh-huh. Uh, full disclosure, I have one of these things. And I, I need you to attest, Santa, that I never mentioned to you that I had this. No, I didn't know One of all. these ionator things, right? And so we're not in the business of endorsing products. And I was going to make no mention of it until you brought this story to me. And I thought, huh, I had those exact same questions. Um, a, a friend had an extra one and gave it to me. They thought I'd, with my love of gadgets and everything, I'd get into it. But I was like, I don't know if it's working. Right. It seems like a total infomercial flash-in-the-pan thing. Yeah, I brought it in. Do you want to see it? Oh, really? Check this out. It's the This is the commercial version. Jeez, it's really big. I know. And it, here's how it sounds. I'll get the mic down on the counter here. It lights up. And it smells kind of weird. It doesn't come out smelling like water. No. It's got a clean kind of scent to it. I don't know. It's sort of filling the room now, isn't it? Yeah. Well, isn't, that, isn't that something? So, I don't know. The ionator, does it work? Does it not work? You well, can't tell by looking. Bill Nye says so, and his career is on the line. His career is on the line, and I guess we'll just have to see as it plays out. And as Joellen Firetag of the University of Minnesota said herself, you know, the hardest part about selling this product is that it seems too good to be true. Uh, until the public kind of can accept the fact that this thing works, it's probably going to stay pretty obscure, so... Okay, so we tagged one more item onto your list here, and I know this is running a little long, but this one, we just couldn't pass it up. Uh, this attests, again, like like your first stuff, to the power of social networking. Right. Uh, so why don't you give us the basic details? It okay. starts with a couple going to a movie. They go to a movie, and they try to pay with credit card, like many people do, because movies now cost $8 gajillion, and they can't. The theater says they only take cash or check. They go to the ATM, and it's out of cash. Hmm. Luckily, they have a friend who helps get them in, gives them some money. But then in the movie, they're going to see Shutter Island, and um, the the employees of the movie theater come in saying that there are people who are in this theater who didn't pay for it, and they're spending the first 20 minutes going around with flashlights trying to find freeloaders in the movie and uh, basically ruining the experience for this couple. So they write a letter off to the uh, to the company sure, saying, why not? we're PO'd and uh, you guys should do something about this. Yes. And, uh, and then we get to 
The letter in response. From the vice president of this uh, entertainment company. Right. So here's the letter from Stephen. I won't give his last name because he suffered quite enough opprobrium already uh, to Sarah, the moviegoer. And uh, bear in mind, White Bear Lake, which he references, is a, is a big theater complex nearby. Sarah, drive to White Bear Lake and also go f*** yourself. If you don't have money for entertainment, get a better job. And don't pay for everything on your credit or check card. You can also shove your time and gas up your f***ing ass. Also, find better things to do with your time. This email is an absolute joke. We don't care to have you as a customer. Let me know if you need directions to White Bear Lake. Ouch. And then he gives his like name and the position at the company <laughs> his, and his phone number. A couple of alternate phone numbers in his email signature. It's, oh my goodness. Yeah. So, so, Sarah's next step. I called up Sarah to find out her reaction and she said her jaw hit the floor. I had to reread it a few times. Be like, are you kidding? Because... As a vice president of a company, you should be using way more professional language than that. I thought to myself, I need to put this on Facebook. Very quickly, within the first five minutes of me posting it, there was a boycott set up. And within two days, we already have over 1,700 members, and many of them have similar experiences. So it's not just letting people know about it. It's people being able to share their experiences and take a stand against bad customer service. And that's how we found out about it. One of our colleagues saw mention on Twitter, and we went to the Facebook page, and it's humming. Yeah, it's like only a couple days old, and the site's blown up. Not only are there like, uh, you know, peeved customers writing in, but there's former employees talking about that branch specifically. And then they got really crafty. They found out that this is a chain, and the guy who wrote Sarah back is the VP for this chain, and they identified his other movie theaters he's responsible for, and have started talking about boycotting those as well. So this guy, uh, he really shot himself in the foot on this one. Yeah, not like that kind of a letter is ever appropriate, even in, you know, the horse and buggy days. But now, look out. Sarah said the exact same thing. She said, uh, you know, had this been 10 years ago, she would have told a couple people, maybe seven people would have been uh, boycotting this place. But, you know, now 1,700 and counting. Um, you got to watch what you type. The name of the group on Facebook, if you want to check it out yourselves, is Boycott St. Croix Falls Cinema 8. Yep. All right. That's the Week in Geek. And uh, we do have a little Week in Geek theme here, so we might as well play it again while we can. <laughs> The Weekend Performed, by the way, on the geekiest musical instrument I could find on short notice, a little electronic gizmo called a stylophone. Get yourself one for only 20 bucks. They're in, what do you know, the Think Geek catalog. Uh, and while we're still kind of in tech mode here, I'm going to try a little geek journalism experiment. There's this website. It's gotten a ton of buzz over the past week. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but I'll tell you about it. It's called Chat Roulette. And uh, the name kind of explains what it is. You basically set up a webcam and you click a button and you're connected with some random person who is also using chat roulette at that time. I haven't tried it yet, but I thought, what better excuse than to try it for the show? And I'm looking at it right now on my computer and I've managed to rig up my little laptop and the webcam and all that running into uh, the fancy audio mixing board that we have here in Studio 3B. And I'm going to click, uh, in this case, it's a button that says play, which will connect me to somebody and we'll see what happens okay that was interesting um, so it's connecting to a series of people I just saw a naked man flash by great I have to eat lunch in a few minutes hello yo mate hey man what's up Oh, thank you. 
Goodbye to you, I think is what that means in whatever language that is. That's bizarre. If you wouldn't mind stopping copulating with a raccoon for a minute, uh, you want to do an interview with a radio show in Minnesota? All right, moving along. Hey, dude. Just going to dance for me? All right. What is that, Black Eyed Peas? Okay. So here's my deal. This is why I have the microphone here. I host a radio show in Minnesota, and I'm doing interviews uh, with people on chat roulette. You want to talk to me? Yes, I, I will try because I'm French. Let's go for it. What? Where are you in uh, France? I'm from Paris. Okay, so when I uh, ran across you here, you've got Black Eyed Peas playing and you're just dancing around. Is that sort of your usual thing you do on chat roulette? Yes, it's just a technique, you know. Technique uh, for what? What's the goal? When a person sees you, you have just one or two seconds to to say hello to him. Uh-huh. So if you dance, perhaps the person will be stopped more, more time. I see. Maybe that's why everybody's flashing past me so quickly, because I'm not dancing. I'm just sitting here at a microphone. Perhaps. Mm, okay. Uh, so do you actually talk to people then, or do you just sort of dance for a while and move on? Uh, sometimes I can talk with them. So uh, in general, it's, some, it's for girls because girls are more cool than men. <laughs> are you hoping to sort of meet girls? Is that is that the point of chat roulette? A lot of girls come here to see some dick, but I know. it's not my goal. I've seen some of that. I prefer dance. And in general, French, English, and American stopped on me. And we start to chat a little bit, and after next. Just curious, what do you do for a living? I am a rugby coach. Rugby coach? Yes. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> that's that. That's a full-time job? Sweet. Yes, but it's just for children, you know. Uh-huh. We try to, to learn rugby to, to children of eight, eight years old. Can eight-year-olds play rugby? Sounds a little dangerous. No, I don't think so. No? Because if you have the technique, it's not... Uh, I don't remember the word, but uh, what is that? I, Ouch! Yeah, painful? Maybe? Painful, thank you. <laughs> uh, if you have the technique, it's not painful. So you don't have eight-year-olds with uh, bloody noses and broken limbs on a daily basis? Yes, a lot of cries, but there is... <laughs> I have... Lots of cries, I think. A lot of cries? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, can I ask your name, your first name? Yes, my first name is John Baptiste. Well, John Baptiste, it's uh, nice to meet you, and thank you for speaking a little bit of English with me. So I'll, I'll let you move along and dance for the next uh, woman. I will put the music again. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good night. Goodbye, and thank you. Bye-bye. That was interesting. 
you know, in the course of about an hour on Chat Roulette, I did have some other good conversations. I talked with a woman in Denmark who was working on a school project for college about Chat Roulette. And I talked with a bunch of women in uh, Leeds, England, who were just hanging out, goofing around. But for the most part, I've seen some things, man. And they're things that I'm not going to forget easily. And the tamer of them would have been the overweight Japanese man in a thong and a white headband dancing around in his tiny little apartment. I've seen some stuff. And so in case there is any question, let me just make it very clear. Chat roulette, I have learned it is not safe for work. It is not safe for your children. It is not safe for your grandma. It is not a family activity. So consider yourself forewarned if you choose to pursue that little adventure. Quick reminder, just to thoroughly cleanse the palate before our last segment here of some of the many ways you can interact with us here at In The Loop. Loopfacebook.net. If you have not been to our Facebook page, but you're listening to the podcast, you're missing out on a big chunk of the experience. Uh, Keep up with us on Facebook. We've got segments going out regularly and questions and thoughts and videos and reactions and all kinds of stuff happening there. And if you're not in our network, our public insight network, sign up for it because that is a really important tool that we use to build the show as well. You can sign up for that by clicking join the network on the right-hand side of our webpage, intheloopshow.net. One of the great pleasures for me of the last few weeks of the show has been this series that we've been calling our Starving Artist Interview Series. And the premise is we are talking with people who in the midst of the recession were either laid off or maybe they quit their jobs and decided to try to make it as an artist. So far we've talked with an actor, a stand-up comedian, and a, a printmaker, a visual artist, Today, I have got a poet and sometime photographer joining me in the studio. Her name is Cole Sarar. Cole, very glad to have you here. Thanks. And Cole's had lots of desk jobs over the years until September 2008, from what I understand, when uh, you got laid off. Is that right? Uh, The Minnesota Center for Photography closed, and I was the last employee, so I left with it. Hmm. And uh, you decided to kind of stay laid off, at least from desk jobs. (laughs) I don't know that that it was a decision. Um, It was a reality of the situation. I mean, I've applied for probably a hundred some jobs in the past year and a half or so. Wow. There are jobs out there. It's just really, really tight. Okay. So it kind of forced me into looking at, at what else was going on in my life. Well, yeah, this makes you a little bit different than the other people we've talked to, I think, who sort of took that as a cue to say, okay, I'm going to make the leap and make this big commitment and, you know, run at right, my art. Right. In this case, your your art, which is poetry and photography to some mm-hmm. extent, right? I mean, that's been kind of your your backup. I mean, that's your safety net. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and like, it wasn't something that, like, I was, you know, intending to be a backup or safety net. I mean, it's my passion. It's what I, I do because I love to, and I, I probably couldn't stop if I wanted to. It just started making money, and... Suddenly I had people wanting to buy my photographs or wanting to book me for shows. It kind of came through like my guardian angel. Mm-hmm. Uh, like people wanted to buy my art where they couldn't hire me. And it worked out that way. Uh, now, except in rare cases, I would think that poetry especially is not something that you really imagine no. paying the bills. No. Well, right? and honestly, I didn't anticipate any money coming out of photography either. I had a couple years in college, but I didn't really have like the professional background that a lot of photographers in the community have. And you're not shooting lots of weddings and corporate events. No, and that's not the kind no, of photography no, 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 no. you do. I mean, I'm doing some portrait photography. Mm-hmm. I, I have done some weddings, but they were all just for friends and I didn't 
charge them for it. It was my wedding gift to them. So you're, uh, what, 29, 30? I'm 30. So how have you been putting it all together, I guess? It's, it's been a year and a half, right? Since, right. Since you lost your job. Somehow, you're still still going. Right. And the art is a big part. The of art is a really big finances. part of it. Um, the, the, creati- the creativity, the um, kind of creative flexibility is really what makes it work. Um, also, just knowing a lot of creative people and networking is really, really, really what helped. People knew that I was looking for work. So, so. money-wise, though. Money-wise. What, what brings in money? I mean, you, you, have, <laughs> you, have, you have rent to pay and it's, food it, to buy. I won't lie. I'm, I'm a little bit behind on my rent. Um, lucky for my roommates are, are really kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the photography, that's come in a couple of times. Uh, I have also got an Etsy site up, and that's something that's really big right now. I've also had just lots of random little projects. I taught a spoken word poetry class to teens at the Franklin Avenue Library. I mean, you get paid something for that, but is it mostly mm-hmm. out of the goodness um, of your heart? Really? That one was actually decent pay. Um, it's through a grant that they have to get artists into teen centers and get them these creative outlets. I have done some some things for free or for truffles I, I performed for the other day. <laughs> Nutritious. Have you been surprised that you can do it at all? That yes. Does it say make money at this stuff? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Over and over. Every time. I've been writing for a long time. I've been making photographs for a long time. But I don't consider myself like an expert or a pro by any means. Mm-hmm. You're busy and, working jobs like the rest of us. Right. Right. And I have picked up some side jobs just to like make ends meet. But yeah, no, there's this continual surprise and delight that there is so much love and interest in what's going on in the arts. Well, maybe this would be a good time to just have you do a a reading for us. Okay. It's called Cinderella? Mm Mm-hmm. All right, let's hear it. Don't sweep me under the rug, Cinderella. I'm t-shirt and jeans, worn hoodie, pull it up over my muddy hair, get onto my handlebars, and shrug off all these ashes. Lace wasn't meant for you, Cinderella. We got laces. Stop sneaking under your stepmom's curses. We've got sneakers. We've got street. We've got speakers. We've got heat. Stop waiting for that boy in the castle, Cinderella. Towers were meant for tumbling. Start fires. Don't be handed off like a pair of lost shoes. Grandma gave you slippers that will shatter. Write your own steps. This dance isn't over. Be big. Be brave. Be bold. Behave like it was you you were living for. Don't sweep me under the rug, Cinderella. I'm t-shirt and jeans, worn hoodie. I'm your spirit, the burning coals under all that ash. All right, Cole Sarar, uh, back with us now, 30-year-old white girl from Minneapolis again now, and we'll continue <laughs> the interview. Is there a way that, for you as a poet, you, you characterize your work? I mean, visual artists can put themselves, if, if need be, into certain kind of easily understood categories, but how, how does it work for as a, poets? As a spoken word poet, I'm put by the larger spoken word community into the slam scene, so I'm a slam poet, because I compete with it, and so I write poems that are mostly between one and three minutes long. When you're looking at a written poem, you have a chance to look at it, you have a chance to digest it. Spoken word happens so fast that you don't really necessarily have the time to go through and like figure out all the metaphors and figure out the very subtle aspects of the poem. Mm-hmm. Spoken word poetry is kind of, I don't know, pedestrian in terms of it needs to be able to hit audiences that aren't necessarily academic, aren't necessarily folks who've read all the things that you've read. So as usual, we're live video streaming this interview as we do it. And uh, some people are sending in a couple of questions. One from from Mark, our trusty listener, Mark in Paris. It's it's evening in Paris, so I think Mark just gets to kind of hang out Hi, and Mark. wait for us to do stuff. Uh, in a very kind way, uh, his question was, 
some people don't really expect poetry to pay. Do you ever run into to this sentiment that why should you get paid to do poetry? You know, it's just not that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, like, if you are working on it and people are getting something out of it, it's just like music. People pay to go see a band play. They pay for a CD. Writers do work really hard on their work. You know, we spend hours and hours and sometimes days and weeks working on one poem or a book of poetry. Then we spend time editing on it and we spend time working on how it's going to work out on stage. We perform it and rehearse it. This isn't like, you know, we're, we're just sitting around having fun doing this off the top of our heads. Right. It's a lot of work. Now, in the, in the little bit of notes that I got on you, I think you, you use the phrase that you've been living... 100% bare bones Yes. over the past year and a half that you've been trying to do this. Uh, what, is, what does that mean on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> um, my cupboard is pretty bare right now. I live off of lentils quite a bit and rice. I buy a big 25-pound bag of, of rice that's part of how you live cheap. Um, was, this, was this your life before you lost that job? No, not particularly. I mean, I like eating out. I love good food. Um, I went to movies, went out to music shows. I'm having a harder time connecting on that level with the creative community. A lot of what's kept me going is the fact that I'm doing a spoken word blog that is working for the community. People will let me to come to their shows for free if I promise to write them up. Are you worried that if you find a job, it'll kill what you've got going, I mean, as difficult as it is right now? I've gotten really good at making sure that I allot time for my art and that it's really important for me to do that. I'm not applying for some night jobs just because I want to continue to slam and go to these spoken word events. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you meditated for an hour before you came in here or whatever. Maybe it's just the soothing effect of being a creative person. But I, I just want to know, like, how are you not more stressed out? Oh, I'm, I, get, I get really stressed out. Um, freaking out about it isn't going to help. It's the main thing that I've, I've, I've kept as my, my Zen thought. Um, what's going to help is continuing to network and continuing to work on things. I want to ask you a little bit about photography, and then I'll have you do another Absolutely. poem for us. Uh, is, is the photography, as far as the financial ledger sheet goes, is that the more important of the two? Right now, it is definitely the more profitable of the two because it is something that people understand the value of very easily. People want photographs of themselves. People like to look at themselves. People want that tangible thing that they can work with. It's part of their plan, whereas my poetry isn't necessarily part of their plan for themselves. It's kind of a service. It's not like my creative photography is getting me lots of money. Is it less sort of personally gratifying to you? Ultimately, yes. I mean, most of the photography, the portrait photography I do still kind of gets my vision in there. So I don't feel like, I don't know, like a sellout or like like it's boring or rote. Mm. Well, let's hear another poem from you and I'll be wise and turn the mic down just a bit. All right. Another poem from Cole Serrar. And this must be what it feels like to really be in love. Not some passing flutter of lacy flakes that balance perfectly on the tips of green grass blades. Not some nighttime shimmer in streetlight only to melt with the noonday sun. It is being snowed in. You might want to hide in your warm bed mornings, knowing it has piled up against the screen door and glazed over your windshield, making it tough work to see exactly what is going on out there. And you want to drive fast, just get through it. But the more you push the gas pedal toward the floor mat, the more your heart fishtails through the intersection, the more likely you are to spin out of control and find yourself wrecked in it. Being wrecked is not pretty. By daylight, it is blinding. 
Nothing looks like it used to. Everything has gone from this bare ache of leafless branches and gray sky and become some sort of holiday greeting card. Unbelievable and dreamlike. You don't want to go out in it. Your footsteps and shadow will only sully it. If you keep your distance, it may always be pristine and perfect. By night, it howls past walls, shakes your old window panes, keeps you up late. Or is immense and quieter than you can imagine. You awake sleepless at 3 a.m., watching now amber, now red, now green by the stoplight at the corner. It is falling like astronauts to the moon. Slow motion floaters. It will call you like the Pied Piper, undisturbed before the plows. You will rise and dress like a synabulist. You will walk out into it, see the city lit up and empty, washed clean with your lover. You will not feel alone. It will cover the sidewalks and playgrounds. Every park bench and doorstep will belong to you, the snow, and 3 a.m. And you will grow tired of it. You will slip and fall, and it will hurt or be embarrassing. You will tire of how it grasps at your fingertips, how it waits at your window, how it sits at your doorstep, muddy and kicked like a hungry mutt. You will dread going out in it, all those idiots out there, driving like they've never been in love before. There's too much of it out there, imperfect, in great unwanted mounds and Walmart parking lots. You will push it from your sidewalks. You will brush it from your car. This much is a burden. You will wish for warmer climes. And find yourself waking at 3 a.m. sometime in late March, heart and lungs swollen, sleepwalking into your hat and mittens, slipping into boots waiting faithfully by the door. It will settle on your eyelashes. Your cheeks will grow pink. It will tell you it misses you. It forgives you. It understands. It just wanted to see you one last time before it had to go. That's a newer one? Mm-hmm. That one was uh, one I wrote in December. So before the whole Toyota thing, but with the whole passage about the floor mats and spinning out of control, you should be able to get some money, I think. It's <laughs> Some sort of like a Toyota-related protest or something. Oh, no. At the very, at the very least. Well, I, I really admire your Zen-like state. <laughs> I would, trying to make the best of it, you know, with, with poetry and a little bit of photography when the job applications aren't coming through. I mean, it's it's a ridiculous situation in a way, but you're living to tell the tale. and Here I am. Tell some poems. So that's cool. Cole, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Cole Serrar uh, runs minnesotamicrophone.com, which is sort of a clearinghouse for information about... Uh, Spoken word events here in the Twin Cities. And her personal website, if you want to read some more of her stuff, is inktea.com. We got some good news from Cole just after we talked to her. She found out that she uh, landed one of the big grants that she'd applied for. So that will certainly help for a while. And if you're here in the Twin Cities and you want to see her perform, check her out as part of the lineup March 2nd at the Bedlam Theater in Minneapolis. Good old Bedlam, site of our, many of our wonderful story slams back in the day. So that's the end of the show. And In the Loop, as usual, is produced by Sandin Totten and me. And, of course, a lot of help from Anna Wegel, who has handled the booking and editing of this Starving Artist series. One more of those still to come. A musician, her name is Heather Lynn, and I'm looking forward to it. No big fanfare here at the end of the show. It's been kind of a long one, I know. Our, our rhythm is a little bit stretched out because of some internal team-building meetings and so forth that we've had, so we wound up with a lot of content for this particular episode. But thanks for hanging with us. Just a quick reminder that the Minnesota Public Radio member drive is still going on, and if you want to support 
Minnesota Public Radio, of course. And In The Loop, we've got our special In The Loop contribution system kind of set up. You can learn more about that by going to www.mpr.org slash in the loop give. And you can also dig up the information just by going to our website. Well, it is because of this whole rhythm being off thing. It's the middle of the week, but hey, it feels like a Friday to me. Everybody have a good rest of the week and a good weekend.